to Campfire Fireside Chats. This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Welcome, campers, to this week's Fireside Chat. This week, we sat down with blogger and lifelong 4TN, Stephanie Quick. We discussed the influence of growing up in the midst of the Bay Area's early 80s art scene, some of her early paranormal experiences, her near-death experience, and the meeting place between Western spiritualism and ritual magic. Stephanie is a brilliant and intoxicating person. I really hope you find this conversation as entertaining and thought-provoking as I did. Go check out her blog. It'll be linked in the show notes. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this fireside chat with Stephanie Quick. All right, Stephanie Quick. First, um, uh, I just (laughs) want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Oh, no, this I'm looking forward to. It'll be fun. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for our listeners to get a chance to know you because following you like on Twitter and having, you know, the, the few conversations we've had, it's been, it's been fun. Thanks. I was uh, distracted because I had a, a view of your uh, young Corgi's butt at the, <laughs> the couch behind you, which yeah. is just really cute. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm uh, excited too. I really uh, appreciated your, um, show that you did along with I think a book of tracing owls uh, helped on that where you had all the people talk about the words that they liked yeah. to use to refer to uh, the paranormal or weird stuff and it was really uh, so fun to just hear what everyone had to say and it was great too because there was diversity and you know gender and then uh, people who are very uh, well spoken and uh, obviously highly educated with yeah. a big theory about it and then other people who are just have a love of weird stuff and were much more informal and funny and um, it was really I love that because I uh, I like to bring it all together in that yes. way um, I, I do like to joke around and have a sense of humor, uh, but then these uh, more theoretical, uh, technical, ab- you know, abstract concepts are very compelling as well. So um, I just really like uh, like that project a lot. So thank you. Yeah, I that I think that was a that was like a turn of the page for our show that doing that project because yeah we'd been doing the show for about a year at that point and we had sort of made friends in multiple say clicks right within the community and um it was awesome to to get them all together right because like you said there are those people who you know maybe they just go check out haunted houses on the weekend and that's the extent of their you know their involvement and to have them right beside someone who has spent you know 30 years writing books and theorizing about, you know, 14 phenomenon. Yeah, it was, it was cool. It was, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Cause I really feel like there's, um, uh, I'm very passionate personally about, uh, I guess probably my, my, uh, guide, guiding star, which might turn into a UFO. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I um, my concern about this and my uh, love of this is that um, 
I'm always uh, most concerned with, you know, people who have these strange experiences, who witness things that uh, stretch their sense of reality or what's possible. Um, I think that is really important. And I think that these, uh, you know, people with a huge, do huge research who are uh, bringing new theoretical models to bear on these um, narratives and experiences can be extraordinarily helpful. But I think that, um, you know, it's very important to have experiencers and people in the mix and to feel like people uh, don't have to have studied something for 30 years um, to be able to contribute. Um, And I also, I'm 60 years old at this point, at the point of recording. And, um, you know, I've seen... I've, I've been interested in UFOs and ghosts and strange stuff at, literally since I was probably around six or seven years old. So okay. that's a while. And I've yeah. seen a progress that's been happening, but then I also see there's a lot that hasn't happened, and, and I would like to see things continue on after my generation passes to dust. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, that's part of it, is to get new people who are interested and excited and younger um to feel uh, welcome and like what they have to say is important and that there's a place for them. Um, uh, People who are my age, who have been around a while sometimes, and it's it's understandable, you know, you, you, okay. (laughs) What I was going to say is you get old and cranky. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you you only have so much time and energy left. Um, But I see some people and they they get a little... uh, I don't know. They're not as welcoming as, as I personally would like to see about people with new viewpoints, younger people, um, people who may have had like some really strange, weird experience that doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of what we've kind of developed so far. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how, I mean, there's so much that we haven't figured out yet. To me, it's like, well, what do we have to, I mean, everyone only has so much time and energy. And I, I understand that, especially if you're trying to get things done or you have responsibilities. But at sure. the same time, to me, it's important to have a space for, uh, you know, new people, new ideas, young people. Um, yes. So that hopefully things will continue to get figured out a little bit. And then also, you know, just I want people who've had strange experiences to feel like they can talk about it and, um, you know, be part of the community and getting help. I, I don't like, and I've seen it happen uh, various places over time, but to, to get people shut down, it's like feeling like, well, we already know that it's uh, aliens from Zeta Reticuli, or we know that it's multidimensional, or we know it's like, sure. no, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anytime someone says, I know, I I, I lose interest pretty immediately. Um, I mean, I, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> I think the, um, the Fortean community, just like just like any other community, has a real. It has had a real problem with gatekeeping, and not only um, researcher to researcher. Because if you're someone who's interested in doing this like part time or on the weekend, like we mentioned before, um, it could be pretty intimidating to step into an arena with you know people with advanced degrees and people who have been writing books about it and developed all these theories, um, but also for experience themselves. You know, I I have a particular love for production companies like um, Small Town Monsters mm-hmm. and like um, 
Dockside Media who are out here making these documentaries and interviewing experiencers, and they're very on their level. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're they make it accessible. They make they're very good at making the the experiencers comfortable, and it's what I think we should avoid is making experiencers feel like they're going to the doctor when they you know what I mean when they talk to someone about their experience or like it's like it's a dentist appointment where there's some like hierarchy between the person taking the report and the person giving the report Um, which I think existed a lot early on in the 50s 60s when you talk about like cases um, where people were obviously manipulated by people doing hypnotherapy and things like that, where there was this weird sort of one person's controlling the narrative and the other person's just kind of the vehicle for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's all like parts of the same big problem. No, I, um, I was recently on our strange skies talking about the Betty, uh, the Andreasen and her, oh, yeah. uh, experiences and uh, Rob was very kind to me because he let me just like go in right off the bat talking about social status yeah, and how people in this field have been really concerned with that and how it's uh, been kind of uh, toxic in the community. It's like, well, this person has published books and they have a degree in whatever, so we'll listen to them. Yeah. Um, and, and like you say, they have kind of taken these narratives from these lower class people and then processed it so that it's palatable for us, you know, whatever people think they are, status they are. Um, and it's particularly problematic, especially like you were talking about with some of the researchers in, um, well, like uh, Hopkins with the whole missing time and the whole idea, like uh, Jacobs really got into this of uh, develop, uh, uh, developing this whole hypothesis that there was this hybridization program that was like yeah. very uh, sexually aggressive, sexual assault type of scenarios in yeah. these um, abductions. And then using these uh, techniques of hypnotism and alter states of consciousness. Um, and there's this weird thing where you have all these, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, women who had had strange experiences and were feeling vulnerable about that, men as well. Um, you go to this researcher, uh, both Hopkins and, and Jacobs, who are more high status people. Um, and, you know, they're leading questions, um, putting people in these suggestible uh, states of mind, um, and then kind of mining, in a way, these people's experiences for the things that they think are going to fit into their narrative that they're developing about the alien agenda, and so on. Um, And if people are in that much distress about their experiences, I think, you know, the ethical thing to do is to try and get them some type of help. Of course, here in the United States of America, <laughs> that could be problematic because of the, uh, you know, we don't have great access to health care. Sure. But it's still at all. Um, and there are places that uh, do take this type of uh, approach that's very much centered on the health and well-being of people who have these experiences. There is a place called the... Uh, Forever Family Foundation and they I think it's um, Julie 
Oh, I forget her name. And Mark Bacuzzi and uh, Lloyd Auerbach, I believe, is also uh, associated with them. And um, they are concerned with after-death communications and how this affects people who have been bereaved and the grieving process. How do people evaluate if they want to um, try and initiate some type of after-death communication with a loved one? How could you, for example, incubate a dream? Or how do you evaluate if you want to go through a, a practicing medium who is a person who can uh, facilitate that type of communication? Um, how would you go about evaluating a medium and... Um, making sure that you're not getting ripped off. What is an right. appropriate amount of contact and compensation for you to have with a medium so that it's it's um, not some kind of ongoing exploitive type of situation. Yeah. Um, but that some you kind can of have... standardization in the practice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they are developing tools for evaluating mediums. Um, they're doing research on like spontaneous after-death communications, what they might look like, um, and how they uh, affect people and the grieving process. You know, yeah. are they detrimental to the mental health or are they helpful? It, the research so far seems to show that it's actually helpful. And um, so, and then they have tools as well for people to develop like their own, um, let's say, size skills or sure. mediumship capacity so that you're not dependent. You know, if you want mm -hmm. to, and I always encourage people to, um, uh, to if they're interested you know go for developing your own capabilities that is going to give you a better um handle on you know evaluating things and then you don't necessarily become uh dependent on someone else or um put yourself in a vulnerable position to be ex ex possibly exploited yeah but um i think the i think the truest believers among us would even admit that there are are an awful lot of charlatans out there. Well, people right? are people. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that subject Sadly. really hits home for me because I lost my dad at the beginning of last month, yeah. and I've been having, you know, lots lots of dreams. Yeah. You know, with him, and yeah, yeah that's. So that's, I don't know. It's weird. It feels weird that you, you know, that the conversation went that way because, yeah, I've been experiencing a lot of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 very common. I, you know, it's interesting because for me personally, I uh, was always interested in all this stuff from the time I was small, uh, and I didn't have a lot of experiences or things that I identified as strange experiences until I was around twenty. And I ended up getting uh, very ill and having this big old near-death experience. But around, wow. and I think it was before then, I had um, grown up next door to, we, we lived next door to a family and, and the uh, kids, it was a brother and sister, mom, dad, brother and sister. And um, they were a little bit older, like maybe about f four years older, three years older than us. Like old yeah. enough where we didn't really play together or anything, yeah. particularly. I mean, they were always very nice and stuff. The uh, daughter, Claire, she ended up uh, getting married. And she was, I don't know, she was like a 19 or something like that. And um, got pregnant very quickly. 
and had a, uh, I believe it was a daughter. And then um, within a month or two after that, I think, you know, pregnancy puts a huge stress on the system, right? Yeah. Um, Her husband came home from work and found her unconscious on the floor. She'd had a massive stroke and she she died, Um, which is just, it's really horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so one of the first uh, strange experiences I had, or one of the first times that I had connection with a dead person was that she came, I was dreaming, and I was down at uh, Mrs. Johnson's house. <laughs> we had some Mormon families in our neighborhood, and, and Mrs. Johnson was wonderful. We were always over at her house um, until they moved. She had like, I don't know, six kids or something, and a lot of kids. And Claire was like in her garden, like kind of weeding or planting flowers or something. And she was basically telling me that um, that when you died, like you're, it, it didn't solve all your problems. It just, you know, you still had things that you had to deal with. It, it wasn't like a panacea or anything, yeah. which is kind of weird because you'd expect of that type of a message more from someone who, uh, let's say, had uh, died by suicide. Sure. Um, but she had that, uh, and you know, I mean, it's not hard or difficult to feel that, um, you know, someone like that who was just so young and had just got married, just had a baby, and it's just like suddenly all that gone, yeah. um, you know, would be incredibly difficult even, you know, I mean, it's not like you just died, oh, everything's great because... <laughs> sure. Yeah, nothing had ended for her. It was just beginning. Um, but yeah, but I can't, I believe that happened even before my own near-death experience. It's just this very strong sense of communication with someone who had died. And since that time, I've that's been a huge uh, part of my own personal experiences is just communications with dead uh, people and animals. Yeah. Um, but it def- I think it's incredibly common for people to have like an experience like you're having uh, through dreams, especially if you remember your dreams or suddenly people will be remembering their dreams more and, and dreaming with the, the person who's uh, who's moved on. So, Yeah, that's my situation because I've been, my dreams have been notoriously elusive mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm, I just... I don't know. In my mid twenties, I started just not remembering my dream mm-hmm. at all, and I would, you know, on a very rare occasion, I would remember one for a fleeting moment. And but yeah, I've been holding on to these, so it's been a unique experience for me. Absolutely. I kind of get the feeling sometimes with experiences like that you're having that, um, like your dad would be. Uh, helping you to hold those <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's yeah mm. that's how it feels because mm. it because i <clears throat> i had gotten to the point where i had just i had kind of given up on exploring my own dreams and you know because it had been so long um i was just coming to terms with the fact that like it's just beyond my abilities you know mm. so to suddenly have that ability it feels like you know a helping hand right yeah. 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 I I don't remember my dreams that often. Mostly because I don't know, I just feel it's like I have a 
you know, like I'm usually like have a period of meditation every day and there's usually someone or something <laughs> coming at me and I, I, I'm, I don't know, just the way that um, I structure my consciousness in an energetic body is more, much more open to a lot of input all the time. So I feel like, you know, dreaming, forget it, you know, sleeping. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, and I never really had like a huge uh, aptitude. But yeah, it's weird. It's like some people, their dream life is in- incredibly vibrant. And yeah. then, but that's so fascinating that your dad is kind of helping. It's like he's saying, okay, this is the way in. Yeah. So, yeah. it's really it's, cool. Yeah, it's a silver lining. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So, you were talking about. A story from your youth so that's a perfect segue where did you grow up like um, what what was your family like growing up well uh i was born in fresno and um both my mom and dad's uh family were kind of from around there um and uh I both had a big love of the uh Sierra Nevada mountains and the foothills, uh, kind of south of Yosemite. Yeah. My uh, mom's people actually go back to the Chansey tribe, which is in that part of the world uh, near uh, Corsgold. And then my dad's dad and his brothers grew up on a ranch in O'Neill's, which is also in that kind of uh, part of the world. And so we were always like camping there a lot and everything, um, you know, a couple times in the you know every summer um my it's kind of funny because uh one of my uh interests is true crime uh from the time i was young as well and it, it turns out that um my mom and dad both spent their summers in a town called north fork which is kind of on the way to yosemite on the in the foothills um it, my uh, mom's cousin Les had a like a lodge there, so it was like a you know a bar like wooden bar with like sawdust on the floor and yeah all the the hunted animals' heads all over and stuff. Chandler's made out of antlers, a lot of type of stuff. And then right next door was my dad's uncle Bob, who um, ran the gas station for town that town. He was also uh, chief of the volunteer fire department for many years. Um, anyway, so they they spent their summers there. They n- didn't meet till they were in college later. But the funny thing is that um, it turns out that that uh, there's a serial killer, Ed Kemper, yeah. who has become very famous recently um, in the show Mindhunter and everything. I think he's still alive. He's yeah. unusual, very unusual as far as I can tell, in that um, he actually turned himself in twice. The first yeah. time he turned himself in was because uh, he had murdered his grandparents. His he, I. It sounds like he had been uh, very physically and sexually threatening towards his siblings, and so his mom didn't know what to do because, of course, there's no, there's not really any social services even today for that type of thing. And back then, yeah. so she sent him to live with her, his grandparents, who he murdered at the age of like 15 or 16. That was in the same town that my mom and dad oh, wow. North Fork. <laughs> I'd heard it was North Fork several years ago, and I was asking my dad about it. I'm like, "Did you ever see like this real tall 
and which is pretty my dad was was six two right yeah so Kemper was even bigger than my dad it was pretty big um and it was funny because uh, he's like well there's more than one North Fork in California anyway I finally went on the I was on the Murderpedia page and they were talking about Toll House Road I'm like that's it it's the same town so yeah but they didn't uh, notice him thankfully Oh my gosh! I'm thinking yeah. my uh, my uncle Bob probably did because he had to know everyone in town all that time. Sure. But anyway, oh my gosh, that's wild. Because uh, yeah, I, I'm really familiar <laughs> with that case. I I hadn't thought of you know. There's so many little details when you go really deep on any any of yeah. those big elaborate true crime stories. But yeah, he's Kemper is a unique case study. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and just absolutely. Oh, absolutely horrible i can't think about some of those women just being in the car with him he's so huge and there was a a case where he uh, assaulted and murdered one young woman and 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 that while the other one had to watch and then had the same i mean it's just nightmarish but at least he had the uh common decency to turn himself in at a certain point so (laughs) that's all we can say in his favor i think he's pretty old well i'm living in uh, napa now and we have a a uh, hospital for um well they used to call it the state hospital for the criminally insane (laughs) yeah no they call it something different but you can go down and it's terrible because it's right by this nice hiking trail and you're looking and you see like these huge fences with this razor wire all over the top (laughs) it's like ominous like well we're gonna, every once in a while that at that end of town we'll get like these uh, alerts going out it's like okay everyone's go stay in your house okay. someone's escaped yeah. yeah 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 that's terrifying yeah it's it, well and then, then of course for the people that worked there there was i don't know like about 10 years ago or something there was a, an assault of uh someone who worked there was injured and stuff i think and yeah so that the people that work there really could ha- stand better working conditions yeah. um but yeah, I don't know how we got off onto this tangent here. Everyone's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> gonna be like, "What?" I think you were talking about your parents. Um, they had a love for the Sierra Nevadas. Yes, and we have deep roots in there. Uh, when I was about five, we moved up to uh, Castro Valley, which is in the east of the San Francisco Bay Area, and it is like a kind of more wealthy suburban enclave uh we were probably like more lower middle class but there was like upper middle class people there and wealthy people very white um and uh yeah so there was a weird uh thing with that we got uh we had good schooling and um great uh Enrichment, you know, I would, there was like a, an arts center there, so I was able to take art drawing. Um, we were friends with um, a family that had. I was an art professor, Corbin Lapel. Um, he taught at it was uh, Cal State Hayward then. Now it's Cal State East Bay, but um, you know, he had. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, like Bruce Connor, who is a assemblage artist, and he did oh, a yeah, collage yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he and uh, this fr- family friend of ours, Corbin, had gone to school together in Nebraska. And so, um, you know, we would be over there for potlucks and everything. And they had like Bruce Connor drawings on the walls and wow. stuff. Yeah. So it was like, and my mom, you know, we went to a lot of uh, opera and I was in Oakland Symphony Youth Orchestra. Um, we went to a lot of museums. Um, 
I so there was a lot of of art and culture and it was a lot of experimental stuff um we spent a lot of time going to berkeley we had some friends who lived in berkeley um he was a uh, a lawyer and his actually his family had been uh good friends with uh andrew wyeth the painter and so they had like a, a wyeth uh paintings um that we go and visit them. But we, so we were always like on Telegraph Avenue and around the campus. Yeah. And um, it was interesting to me because I ended up when I was about 15 or 16 uh, becoming very ill and I've had uh, problems with my health ever since. But uh, there was a lot of, um, Berkeley was kind of like the center of like the, the independent living movement and the inc- inclusions for, you know, people, if you, they had a school, a school for the deaf there, um, and there was also a uh, it's not really a school. I don't know. It's like an institute um, for like people that became blind later in life. I lived yeah. down the street from it at one point. So they teach you how to use a cane, and um, of course, over in Marin, they had the uh, center for guide dogs for the blind. So you had a lot of uh, people around that you know, might be considered uh, disabled or something, but they were around. Um, The Center for Independent Living had a lot to do with people with, uh, like a lot of people with mobility issues. Um, For example, and they really pushed for like the Americans with Disabilities Acts and accessibility, you know, like the the cuts in uh, sidewalks and ramps and stuff. So if you had like a wheelchair, you could still go out and just like do things in in places. And so um, I don't know why I was thinking of, I don't know, about a year ago, this really came to mind, but there was like a lot of experimental art and performance art and art that had to do with um, centering the body, right? So instead of like art being, which I have nothing against, and I have a lot of it, um, like a physical object or like a piece of paper that you've drawn something on, right? Mm-hmm. You had a lot of performance art. There's this... So when I was in my uh, mid-20s, I had a boyfriend for a number of years who's a professional artist now, and um, he was very involved with the Richmond Art Center. And um, the history of that, people would do crazy things. Like there was at the Richmond Art Center, they had this piece, this guy, I called it Piss Piece, right? So Mm -hmm. they had this party, and he just drank, like, I don't know, like a 12 beers or something like that till he just like couldn't take it anymore and then he climbed up on this ladder and like stood above like a, some galvanized tub or something or just like peeing into it and it's like that you could like it's like it's like a tone piece like yeah. a sound experience <laughs> so this is kind of like what was going on yeah <laughs> we'd be like you know going to the opera house and listening to this and playing uh, Stravinsky's Ride of Spring on one hand but then you have people doing this type of stuff um <laughs> another guy I when I was I ended up going to school at UC Santa Cruz for a while which is also very wild and then at UC Berkeley when I was on the street of Berkeley this is another thing is like a lot of uh you know People were very interested in sex and uh, sexual expression, all that type of stuff. This is in the early 80s. Um, so I was wandering around, just, I don't know, getting a latte or whatever one day. It's probably like 1983 or something. And I see this guy in a, a wheelchair where it's just like he, I think he has a little bit of use of one hand and then also his mouth. He has like a, a talking board where you could like point, like a, 
have a stick in your mouth and you could point to like words right. or letters on a board to communicate. Um, and then he had a, an assistant with him. And so he came up and his assistant handed me this uh, Xerox piece of paper. And basically he was going to be making this movie and it was, I could participate if I wanted. And it was something where everyone would give like a greeting, like to say hello or hi. And you could, um, you know, however you wanted to do it, simple, elaborate costumes or, oh, you could be naked if you wanted. Sure. And I'm like, okay. So I was like, that's nice, but no, thank you. And it was Frank Moore, who was a poet and also known for, nationally for doing all these like performance pieces because he was very, uh, he had a lot of problems with moving his body, but um, so he'd have like these things where everyone would just be like naked, having like these kind of quasi orgy things. <laughs> yeah. But it's featuring this guy who has like this body that most people, especially back then, would be just like shocked to see. Sure. It would, um, but, you know, I mean, so it was a lot of the stuff that's like kind of very political and about pushing boundaries and about like using your whole person and personal experience as part and parcel of your art. And um, it was cracking me up because I was thinking about Frank Moore and I found a picture of him in one of his, it's like a colored picture and he's just like full frontal nudity with a couple other naked people. And he just looks so happy. <laughs> it's really cute. And I was like, because my mom worked for UC Berkeley for a number of years. So I'm like, Mom, do you remember this guy? And I showed her this picture. She's like, oh, yeah, him. <laughs> it's like one of the few people I can recognize, like, buck naked from yeah. going around uh, UC Berkeley. So anyway, it was just a... I'm sure he made an impression. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it was very uh, liberating in terms of who could participate, but then also how you could participate. And it really got you thinking about ideas as opposed to just, you know, social status and, and who was there and stuff. Um, and technical ability. Yeah. yeah. It was just like your creativity and what you could, your vision for what you could move for. I mean, he was very well known as a, as a, as a poet and for his uh, use of, use of the written word but um yeah so it was just like a lot more uh i don't know wilder and then of course you have i try and convey it to people but you know here in california just people just go ape shit out of their minds about you know spirituality and weird yeah. stuff and <laughs> I mean, you can, you know, you can just like every other block in Berkeley, you know, you have like a, a Zen uh, Buddhist center, you have a Tibetan sure. Buddhist center, you have this Vipassana, you have, it just, it's just like completely inundated. You know, you just walk down the street, start talking to someone and they're offering to teach you transcendental meditation or whatever yeah. is just, people are just crazy about it. So um, it's real easy to pick a lot of stuff up just by osmosis yeah. uh, to meet other people to practice with. Um, I don't know why, a couple of years ago, I was thinking about some of my influences and stuff and just the, the number of um, just like small study groups that are around or just like a small uh, storefront someplace, um, mm -hmm. places that, especially back then, would just make like little pamphlets and stuff that you could learn out of. Yeah, It was just 
kind of off the charts. So I don't know if that. I mean, you basically <laughs> grew up in the birthplace of Western Buddhism, right? Like across the bay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm that. Honestly, I'm jealous of that because I've always had ton of interest in in all that and you know modern spirituality and meditation and and all that but i grew up in rural indiana yeah where that wasn't even a thing being discussed you know what i mean yeah Um, until thank god for the internet where you could find people that you know that you related to it's like the coasts stretched in through the internet that's the thing is that people, you know, they like to get down on the internet. Lord knows it has a lot to answer for. But yeah, I mean, just as, in terms of meeting, if you have a niche interest, um, it's, you know, it's opened things up. I like, I like to sew as well. I've, I've sewn since I was quite young. And uh, man, with the internet and being able to connect with people and stuff, it just my my sewing skills just really took off and yeah. um, my own style and stuff. Because you're able, like you say, you're able to meet with people. And I can't... It was interesting because um, California is kind of like has like the edges, which are, you know, v- very liberal, highly educated, very yeah. experimental, all this type of stuff. And then yeah. you have the... Uh, core. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Which is very much kind of like the middle of the country and so um there's always this uh when we grew up in in castro valley it was very much had more of a lot of that conservative angle to it um even and you know you're able to drive half an hour or something be in berkeley or take bart be in san francisco um but still where you're living are we mm-hmm. talking like farmland conservative or like Orange County conservative? Probably more Orange County because it was a little more suburban and a little more uh, affluent. Gotcha. Um, it's interesting because, uh, to me anyway, um, Rachel Maddow came from uh, the high school that I graduated from. I'm just younger than I am. But actually, um, Cliff Burton of Metallica was in my class at high school. Wow. And, uh, Okay. Yeah, that's something yeah. to talk about. Did yeah, you, I mean, did he, you know him? Uh, not. We weren't like in the same circles. It's funny when I see, um, you know. But we we probably were like in the same schools for like the same class. Of, sure. You know, like maybe three hundred people for about six years. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because when I see footage of him like on stage or something and it kind of how he's built and how he moves and everything it's like oh it's such an odd feeling because it just takes me right back to high school yeah because he didn't have a huge change of image um from how he was yeah uh, like in high school and uh his hair got a little bit longer but you know he basically looked that he had the same kind of like lopey he filled yeah. out a little bit it's so it's an odd thing um, and yeah, we actually kind of awkward, <laughs> lanky, kind of yeah, you know, all elbows. Right? Yeah, kind of loping along. Yeah, know? yeah, tall, long, tall. Um, also a sort of tragic story, right? Because he, terrible, he, he ended up dying young. Yeah, yeah, and his his father um, was really incredible because his his uh, dad especially. Uh, really care because I, I I was in music then I played tuba um, from when I was like about eight 
through high school. And um, so his father was, was known, you know, it came out later that he had always supported, there was cutbacks to the music program at the state level and stuff. And his yeah. father always uh, used his royalties to uh, help sponsor kids who were studying music in Castro awesome. Valley. Yeah. They finally made, I think in Castro Valley and in Alameda County, they finally had a Cliff Burton day a few years ago. And, and um, Cliff's, uh, Mr. Burton uh, died like a year or so ago, but he was really taken under the wing of kind of the heavy metal community. And yeah. it was... <laughs> Because, you know, like on my, um, I don't want to say, like class reunion Facebook page. Yeah. Every once in a while you see these pictures of Mr. Burton. And he's like wearing like a cardigan, like throwing the horns and yeah. <laughs> metal dudes. <laughs> he's uh, like 90 years old or something. That's a but lovely. we also, yeah. But we also had uh, another um, music, music uh, person who became prominent musically um, who, who probably doesn't want to remember me because we're I don't know why I was always on his case and I could always get his goat. We were also uh, for many years, but Jeff Beale, he has become a composer. He won uh, Emmys, I guess, for like the music for House of Cards and that series wow. Rome. And okay. then there's some other thing that he's, I forget what it is. It's like set in New Orleans or something that he was uh, composing for just recently. Um, yeah. So he became like a very prominent and uh, very successful. He was a trumpet player. Yeah. And um, yeah, so we were always like together. And God, my brother, he carries a lot of my memories for me. He's just a year younger than I am. And he, mm. he played trombone. And he was, it seems like every time we get together, he has like some new story of how I was like bugging Jeff Peel. <laughs> like, great. Fun, <laughs> fun fact you're the second tuba player that we've had on for a fireside chat. Really? Yeah, Joshua Cutchin is also yeah. a tuba player. <laughs> oh yeah, well d- yeah, we, we uh, definitely uh, have that in common, and uh, it's kind of funny because my uh, teacher was Floyd Cooley, who was a tuba player in uh, San Francisco. He played for the uh, San Francisco Opera, and he actually had an Irish Wolfhound. Yeah. During the time Haggis when um, when he was teaching me, and. Uh, yeah, I always took a lot of, um, let's say, heart from Floyd because one of the things that he would say to me is that if you want someone who's a good teacher, you don't necessarily want to look at the person who's best at what they're doing. Yeah. Because um, he says that you have people that are very, well, he used like a Dennis Brain as a, uh, the French horn player as kind of one example. He said, you know, he was such had such a natural talent and such a uh, particular way of playing that, um, you know, he didn't have to, like, kind of grind it out yeah. to, to figure out how to do these things. Yeah. Um, and then his own methods, like like Dennis Brain, he used to, like, take matches and break them and, like, kind of put them in certain parts of his horn to get certain effects or tune yeah. it or something. Okay. Yeah, it's like learning guitar not- from Frank Zappa. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So he's like, you know, if you're having problems learning or something, he's like, you know, that there's there's advantages to that. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be good. Yeah. Um, it it means that in a lot of ways you'll have a more conscious uh, overview of the process. Yeah. So that has its advantages too. And I always uh, 
take a lot of heart from that because there's a lot of areas of, that I feel like it just takes me forever to try to wrap my mind around. It's like, what Cooley said. <laughs> um, I try and take that approach. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because people who are naturally gifted, they're, they're often skipping steps. They're, yeah. you know, and it, I imagine it would make it difficult for them to to make their craft accessible to other people, right? Um, people without the same advantages. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just that um, the uh, their performance and being able to teach the performance are just two different skills. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I've I've always been notoriously bad at teaching people mm-hmm. how to play guitar. I've, <laughs> I just can't explain. Like, my brain can't I can't comprehend not knowing how to do it because I've, d- I've yeah. been doing it for so long that it's just, it's second nature to me. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and after years of playing, you, you skip steps, you, you, things are just ingrained in you and you, it's been so many years since I took the time to slow down and look at each, you know, motion mm-hmm. and yeah. So I definitely yeah. understand that. Yeah. It's a white, so, it's a, mm-hmm. So when did um, when did the paranormal become like sort of your, I guess a a more primary focus for you? When did it really kick in for you? Well, I've been uh, pretty much obsessed since I was probably about seven. How did um, that start? <laughs> I can't. Okay, to, to be completely frank, I can't remember a time when. I didn't have this obsession. For me, it's like I always just wanted to know what was behind everything. Yeah. Um, and then it started to crystallize more. And it's funny because my mom talks about when I was little that uh, I'd always kind of sit like cross-legged with my back really straight. And I was always like kind of very self-controlled, even as like a small, ch- like a yeah. baby, <laughs> like before. I um, so I always had this kind of like sense of like self-discipline, and I was just obsessed with, uh, you know, finding out what is behind everything. So I was interested in in science, uh, paleontology, history, art. Uh, fiction all these various things but it was always kind of like with a view to f- getting this this kind of global figuring out of what's going on yeah. and then um as far as the paranormal probably it became a little bit more crystallized um you know we had those scholastic book fairs yeah. at school and i got strangely enough which is a classic and it's just a bunch of um collections of it's basically like a Fortean collection because it has uh, folklore and urban legends and um, ghost planes and flying saucers and the devil's footprints and yeah. ghosts. And so it has a bunch of these various um, accounts and it, they're actually well written and they have a really nice kind of pen and ink drawings at every chapter. And they're all just like maybe, I don't know, two to three or four pages long. So bite-sized. Yeah. And, uh, the thing that really got me was I, I was reading them and I was like, why is it that 
I noticed that people who uh, were seeing flying saucers seemed to have kind of like a, a shift in their consciousness. Yeah. As a, and I was like, why does this seem so strange to them as opposed to just like thinking that it's like a material object, like a, a plane or something? Yeah. And of course, some people do ha- have that. Not everyone has that shift in consciousness, but it really kind of made me wonder about the witness and you know what's happening with them. So I got interested in the consciousness aspect really quickly. And um, yeah, so basically since then, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a that is a massive first step, right? Like a lot of people yeah. don't they don't get to that realization until they're pretty deep in already. Um, I think I think that's a criminally neglected aspect of of Fortiana is the the effect on the experiencer. Yeah. Right? It's so often yeah. overlooked. Yeah. Another big focus of your or something I've heard brought up in relation to you is magic. Yeah. Uh, how did how were you introduced to that? And how did that yeah. how did that kind of become a a focus for you this is a little bit of a poser for me I don't know when I was always more interested in uh, magic from the uh, role of uh, kind of pure consciousness okay so when I was 15 I became very ill with this probably an autoimmune disease but I just started coughing I lost a lot of weight I was having real like kind of asthma bronchitis thing uh, no one could figure out what it was finally ended up with my uh, pulmonologist who I was with for many years and he's like I don't know what's going on but I'm going to stick with you and we'll, we'll get you sorted so I missed almost all that year of school and I was on a lot of prednisone for a long time which has very severe side effects um, and uh, then I got better um, and went back to school I've had problems with the same thing off and on through my life um but the first couple of months it was really difficult because it's like you go from being like a young person that you know it wasn't like I was like God's gift or anything I mean, you could like fart around and, and yeah. walk under your own power <laughs> go to yeah. school you're vital yeah, and I was just like, I mean, one a couple of the doctors thought that, you know, they were kind of like thinking I was going to die. Wow. Not like, oh, well, we had a hard few hours there, but like this has been going on for months and this person, right. you know. Um, really stressful on the entire family, uh, really difficult, obviously, especially since we, you know, didn't have a diagnosis or a plan is yeah so um so i became very uh, despondent and i didn't want to live and i would go through the house because i'd be alone in the house because everyone was at school or working and looking to see uh you know what could be used for self-destructive means and you know i've i realized that you know i couldn't do that to my family um yeah so I decided to just stick it out. And I think that was probably my first big magical act. Because it's just using your will to make a decision. 
And I feel... There's part of me, you know, still to this day, I just feel like... uh, Because you read about people like, oh, I was in high school and I was reading these grimoires and casting spells or or, uh, circles. Sure. (laughs) All that, you know, all that stuff. And I think, wow, you know, I didn't know any of that about any of that stuff until much later. Um, there's still most of it I don't know. I mean, like that What Magic Is This podcast that Doug Bachelor is like, everyone com- comes on there and they're so uh, erudite and yeah. <laughs> um, they know all this history and these incredible uh, texts and, and everything and, and all these, uh, the technical aspects of these particular magical workings, which I don't know any of that. Yeah. But then part of me because I have a pugnacious nature will say I was written off by numbers of doctors and almost dying but I'm still here so fuck you yeah, <laughs> who's fair. the bigger magician yeah exactly <laughs> but I think for a lot for a lot, for a lot of people and um, you know, I'm not just being a brat here. I, I really feel like, I mean, all respect to people, you know, who, who are doing that type of magic, and I love it. And yeah. I, I love all that brainiac stuff. But when the rubber hits the road, you know, if you have, you know, some kid who's been given a death sentence or saying, okay, you know, you're, we're going to chop, I mean, to be brutally honest, I mean, because we're going to chop your leg off and, you know, put you full of chemicals for months on end chemotherapy so you can beat this and go on to live if that person can do that and get through it to me you know those those are i mean that's that's why you would have these systems to to enable those type of things you know a, a parent um uh creating a healthy environment for their kid you know, all that type of stuff. I and mean, when it comes down to it, these kind of survival issues are uh, incredibly important. And I think uh, no one should, I, I think it can be a lot rougher and no one should look down on themselves because they have been, you know, managed to survive and thrive, hopefully, through adversity. To me, you know, many times that involves these incredible, um, you know, like energetic and uh, uh, acts and acts of the will and yeah. of the soul um, which you know for a lot of these uh, magical systems that's what they're in place to facilitate um, so I don't see it as separate but I, I think that's what um, got me on the the road to magic and then in my uh, I was around th- late 20s early 30s i had a time in my life when i was able to because i'd continue with all my interests um oh so when i was 20 i had this big near-death experience yeah and um that ended up putting me in contact with these uh beings who uh taught me a lot they uh, presented me with a lot of ideas and concepts and practices, and they're kind of like, okay, if you want to pursue this, you you can pursue it, and we'll show you how to do this. Um, but they were very, and they still are, 
very um, they don't impose uh, impose their will. So it's like we're going to make this available to you. You have consented to this, and now you can see where where it goes and what you want to do with it. So um, and that's still I a guiding sort of force for you. Oh yeah, I'm still in in contact with them, and um, yeah. Uh, so I started after my near death experience. I started to uh, experiment with some of the techniques that they had taught me, which were very simple, and um, it just kind of work through some of they give me some like kind of core principles and stuff and kind of work through that and um and see what i thought and i i found that what they had uh given me was indeed helpful and i could indeed use those concepts um and uh techniques uh in my life so i was you know working on that and then uh, in my late 20s or maybe around 30 I ended up having uh, like I said a time in my life where I could go and I, I, I went and lived in a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center for a while and uh, studied with uh, Leslie Temple Thurston of Corelight who's like a western uh, teacher of um, you know, like spiritual development and uh, uh, cultivating uh more expanded states of consciousness. Um, she has a lot of materials online if people want to check out what she's up to. And then also, um, I became friends with and kind of in a relationship with this woman who um, uh, she was like just into everything. <laughs> she mostly she had uh, trained with um, North American indigenous teachers of uh, some different. Um, traditions. So she would do like a sweat lodge every month and she had a, a pipe. Um, she had been to India. She had studied various forms of Buddhism. Uh, she taught me Western astrology. She had was studying uh, acupressure, uh, acupressure points, the meridians of the body, the uh, Chinese five element system. She had uh, studied new thought uh, theory in depth. Um, she taught uh, me progressive muscle relaxation um she taught me her own traditions that she had learned from her teachers of um animals and plants uh herbs um the symbolism and the medicine of the various uh animals how you come to know them how to know the relationships between the various animals and get into your own uh divination of uh animal uh medicines and what that means how you can use it, uh, the relationships between them, uh, how to pray, how to uh, make tobacco offerings and tobacco ties. She t- uh, trained me in how to run a sweat lodge, how to build a sweat lodge, how to select uh, what herbs um, for uh, various purposes. Um, I know everyone knows that a sweat lodge is a lot of work, but it's even more work than you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that she sounds uh-huh. fascinating. She really was an incredible amount of energy and curiosity and an incredible mind. And I was thinking about her uh, recently and uh, just trying to write down a list of everything that she had taught me or that uh, she had put me in contact with. Um, and even just... Uh, not just, you know, like all the stuff that I was, I was listing. Like, even if you're going to run a lodge... Um, you know, you have to have the uh, 
the lodge itself and uh, the supplies for the fire and you have to have the correct rocks because you don't want anything splitting open in there. Um, You need to have your herbs prepared. Um, But on top of that, so it's a lot of practical work. But she, you know, from the time that it's going to be coming on the horizon, she would be um, finding out, okay, who's going to come who are they bringing with them? What is going on with everyone, right? Does anyone have a health issue? Do they have money issues? Do they have family issues? Do they have like a, a legal problem, a criminal problem, a job problem? Um, and thinking about, you know, is this whole energetic and attentional thing. How am I going to meld these people together into a healing circle and take care of everyone and manage everyone in this uh, process, you know, which is going on for hours. Right. Um, so it's a lot of interpersonal work as well. Yeah, interper- and just like energetic, attentional work because she'd be talking to people, but then, you know, you have to send these uh, kind of energetic threads out there to get a feeling for, you know, what's going on with this person yeah. behind it. Because, you know, there's the thing that they're saying, but then what are they not saying, which you right. really need to, to tap into. And how are you going to balance this and manage the, the group yeah. during this process? And then when you're in there, you know, you need to have um, your feelers out to make sure how the energy is moving. And then, you know, how are people doing physically um, as well? So um, that gave me a lot of um, respect for anyone that runs a ritual. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, she'd been doing it for a couple decades by the time that I, that I knew her. She was, I think she was feeling kind of pooped out because uh, because it, it is a lot of work physically. But um, yeah, so it's kind of, so it's weird because I, as far as like the ritual magic, um, uh, you know, I feel like I don't, I, there's so much that I don't know like about the Western tradition and stuff like that. But I had this intense uh, personal time of, you know, being with someone who is running that type of thing, you know, day to day throughout months and seeing yeah. what it entails. Um, and, you know, it's very different from reading about it in a book. And especially if you have someone who's going to be willing to, like, who's just going to, like, smack you (laughs) not literally but you know if you're they don't they don't have the time and energy for bullshit or are you fucking up (laughs) so they're gonna keep an eye on you and kind of keep you yeah uh, an effective motivator yes and keep you on track um and then also you know we'd have uh during that same time period um i was at the uh tibetan center and so rinpoche would be leading um like weekly meditations and then we'd have various uh, lamas and, and ripches and, and teachers come through. And so uh, seeing, um, you know, the rituals there and empowerments. But then also, you know, I was living there. So you see what's happening beforehand and afterwards and behind the scenes. Yeah. And so that was very fascinating as well. Like what, I mean, what day-to-day life is really like for the people who are deep practitioners, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 I think, I mean, because the, the outside view doesn't, you know, you don't get that at all. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, a lot of, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time uh, meditating and uh, being quiet so that you... And when I'd been there a while, especially some of the uh, teachers, you could really feel when they're turning their attention to that group and to what they're going to be doing, right? You can feel it. And so I think uh, as beautiful as the rituals are and as powerful as they are, to me, I became more fascinated with that, that attention, that quality of concentration, that energetic shift that you can really feel and that can be very influential. So, Yeah, that the the energy sort of connecting all of it right and people's ability to I don't, almost harness that energy yeah. to affect yeah. you yeah yeah. I'm, yeah I mean you hear people you hear people describe what it's like to be in what it was like to be in a room with someone like Ram Dass right mm-hmm. and yeah yeah and that's what you hear over and over again is you can feel the energy just coming off of them right yeah yeah. 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 That's yeah. that stuff has always fascinated me. I've I mean I've never had an opportunity really to have any real hands-on experience with any of it, but it's just always <laughs> been a point of intrigue for me. It is fun if you're into that type of thing. Yeah. And um if you you know when you are around See, this is a takeaway that, that I would like to convey to you or anyone who's listening, which is, you know, you have the big, uh, the big draws, like, for example, my uh, teacher, Leslie Temple Thurston, you know, you'll be sitting there and, you know, like the room will light up and everything will expand and you, know, you can reach these really intense um, altered states of consciousness, yeah. which is a lot of fun. But since then, and prior to then, I have been able to I, to realize that, you know, these type of um, states of consciousness and that kind of connection can arise spontaneously, pardon me, in your life. And then also, you know, any individual... I mean, one of my interests is uh, these uh, erotic uh, mysticism or erotic relationships with uh, discarnate entities and stuff. And what I give, there's a lot of people that will have like spontaneous mystical experiences with a lover. And it's not like because their lover is like a certified uh, Zen Buddhist mistress or something. (laughs) It's the quality of the connection and intimacy between you. So if you as an individual are able to um, cultivate these uh, qualities in yourself of being able to pay attention and to be able to be intimate with other people, to calm your own mind and be more present in the moment you know you don't have to wait until you can go see the Dalai Lama or whoever although you know if you if you can good for you I, yeah. I would <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> turn it down at this point I wouldn't go out of my way to do it at this point either um, and to me there's something incredibly profound about these more uh, spontaneous 
experiences that arrive out of uh, deep connection and love, like your experiences that you're having with your father. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, for uh, those of us who are fascinated by these type of processes and, and weird events and uh, states of consciousness, of course, it, you know, you're, it's always like, oh, it'd be so cool to be with, you know, someone who can really like put it across, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'll just like sit you down. Okay, here we've blown the top of your head off. <laughs> but, but you know, we're all unique individuals, and we're all expressions of the divine. Yeah. And none of us is is more important than than another one on on that level. Yeah. And um. I would hate for people to uh, neglect their own divinity, their own um, light of their relationships with the people around them, chasing after. Because you get, well, the, I guess the, the expression is a Dharma bun, bums, yeah. you know, people that just get so enthralled with going and, and chasing after various teachers. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's it's a hard balance because you know you want to uh, find the, the people that will help activate this in yourself. Yeah. Um, but it's it's like uh, well, it's like my teacher Leslie would say, um, people uh, that chase the feeling of being in love, right? Yeah. And that openness and the, the feeling that everything is new and stuff, and they and they put that. Uh, idea that it's oh it's this other person that is making me feel this way that it's just like it's that it's your response to that it's coming from you yeah right that yeah. that's the love and so to be able to cult to cultivate that in yourself to appreciate that this other person has helped you awaken that but to realize that it, it it's it's in you right yeah so I think. I think that's a, a beautiful message to end on. Thank you. Yeah. I, I I really like that. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh no, I was real excited to to speak with you and uh got to see your corgi, which is even yeah. more exciting. <laughs> Speaking of the unconditional love Absolutely. of the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I just um yeah, this is uh, really great to have this talk, and I um, look forward to hopefully talking more about stuff with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Before we go, Perfect. if you could share mm -hmm. with the audience where to follow you, what anything anything you have coming up that you'd like them to check out. Probably the uh, easiest thing is to go to my blog. It's called Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. It's uh, stephaniequick.home.blog. And I have a page there with contact information. So like I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Or you can email me. And then I have uh, blog posts, but also um, like podcasts and video appearances if you want to listen to more of what I'm talking about. So yeah. that's probably the easiest. Excellent. Yeah. Also, links yeah. for for all that will be in the show description. So if you want to follow what Stephanie's doing, just go in the show notes and it'll be right there for you. Thanks again. Yay. This this okay, was, I really enjoyed this. Oh, me too. Thank you. You have a good evening.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers. Stay weird. And trust in the unknown. unknown.